This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. Studies Colloquium. Uh, my name is William Uricchio, one of the two directors of the program. And it's a great pleasure tonight to welcome a colleague. We don't so often have colleagues from MIT here, and it's a pity because there are so many treasures, hidden and not so hidden, among our midst. And uh, Stefan Helbreich is it's terrific to have here from Anthropology and STS. Something like that. In that zone? Yes, in that um, zone. Uh, Stefan's work, his PhD and uh, master's work with Stanford, uh, went on to do a postdoc at Cornell. Um, and if you know the field, those are two really wonderful, wonderfully diverse places in terms of the ecosystem that constitutes uh, this particular field. His anthropological work centers on contemporary biologists puzzling through conceptual and technical boundaries on the category of life itself, which is pretty impressive. Uh, his book, Silicon Second Nature, Culturing Artificial Life in the Digital World from California in 98, won the 2001 um, Diana Forsyth Book Prize at the American Anthropological Association. But what's really cool about Stefan's work, and it's coming out soon in a uh, 2009 book, Alien Ocean, Anthropological Voyages in Microbial Seas, is the way in which he works with a lot of different representational strategies, televisual, sonic, um, virtual, various kinds of biodiversity mapping strategies, to look at how that changes representation process itself, how our modeling is in some ways dependent upon these, these entry points, these technologies, these strategies. And um, putting those together really winds up with very kinds of robust spaces and problems and images. And the, the problem of the, of the submarine is a particularly interesting one in that regard, because for those of you that are devotees of submarine films, you'll know that a lot of visual information has to be transformed into sweaty guys listening to pings. Sort of trying to imagine uh, what's out there through the, through the acoustic. It's a really interesting problem, and a lot of films have dealt with it in, in, in fun ways. And I'm not sure that's where you're going tonight, but that broad problematic of re-representing uh, is, is what I take you to be centrally about. So without further ado, you're wired and ready, so I'll put this down and you go. Stephen, welcome. All right, um, I'm wired and ready. Thank you, William, for that kind introduction, and thank you to all of you for coming and uh, hearing me speak about things that happened underwater a little while ago. So I have a prepared text which I'm going to read with feeling. <laughs> I know this is not necessarily the custom of CMS, but it's a custom from the land of anthropology from which I hail and which you'll learn a little bit more about in this talk. So I'll just uh, start and try to avoid as many maritime puns as possible, because they will eat me if I'm not careful. So this is how it goes. I am preparing to sink into the sea, probably the first anthropologist to join the research submersible Alvin on a dive to the ocean floor. The three-person sub sits like a massive clawed washing machine on the stern of the 60-person research vessel Atlantis. Here it is in its uh, kind of on-deck garage, ready to go. Clambering down a steep ladder into the submarine, I find pilot Bruce Strickrot adjusting Alvin's array of knobs, buttons, and computer screens. This is my pilot Bruce getting ready for the dive. Geologist John Delaney is next to descend. 
Delivering a foul-mouthed oath, he wedges his tall frame into a tiny nook on the port side of the sub. And there he is. He looks a little bit like Willie Nelson. That's fine. That's Bruce's joke, not mine. And as we're lowered into the chilly waters of the northeastern Pacific from the enormous metal A-frame rising from Atlantis's fantail, wet-suited escort swimmers survey the exterior of our capsule to make sure we do not go down gurgling. They snorkel past our individual four-inch thick acrylic viewports, each window just wide enough to fit the features of a face. I have talked my way into this storied submersible to do ethnographic research into how oceanographers encounter such abyssal ecologies as hydrothermal vents, like the sites that we will visit today, 200 nautical miles west of the Pacific Northwest coast and 2,000 meters down on the Juan de Fuca Ridge, the edge of a major tectonic plate pictured here. So you can see Washington and Oregon, and then just to the west, the Juan de Fuca Ridge. The Alvin dive I have joined on this June 2004 day will employ a high-resolution imaging sonar system called Imagenics to map portions of the main Endeavor hydrothermal vent field, which is number two, somewhere at the top there, a region of hydrogen sulfide spewing submarine volcanoes, which look more or less like this. The dive will be a standard eight or so hours long. I have been able to sign on largely because no particularly groundbreaking research is slated for this routine excursion. I mean, really, they're going to give a slot on the submarine to an anthropologist? Give me a break. Um, they did. More, more about that in questions, if, you, if you'd like. Anyway, um, this is dive number 4020, an indication of the steady rhythm into which Alvin dives have settled since the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution began operating the sub in 1964. In what I initially imagined to be an idle pun, some graduate students on Atlantis have joked that I will now really immerse myself in the culture of deep sea oceanographers, seeing their favorite habitat, their preferred medium, with my own anthropological eyes. As we drop down toward our destination, my attention is indeed captured by such sights as the evanescent jellies that intermittently flash past my little window, but I am also fascinated by the sounds that accompany and enable our descent sounds like this. This should work. The snug seven-foot diameter interior of our titanium sphere is awash in the metallic and muffled pings of distant sonar devices. The occasional echoes of telephone voices from the Atlantis and the quiet pop music that percolates from Alvin's sound system. And the telephone calls from Atlantis, um, the ship above, sound like uh, Jamaican dub recordings. They have this kind of amazing kind of resonance to them. These bleep blooping, burbling and babbling sounds do indeed contribute, I find, to a feeling of immersion. Submerging into the ocean almost seamlessly merges with a sense of submerging into sound itself and into a distinctively watery soundscape. How did the domain that Jacques Cousteau once named the silent world become so sonorous? How did the underwater realm this zone to which humans cannot have extended unmediated access, without drowning that is, become imaginable and accessible as a space <coughs> of sound. What kinds of technical work have been necessary to bring this field into audibility for human ears? And what have been the cultural and media effects for people in submarines, for example, of such work? Learning the answers requires tuning into the technical specifics of underwater listening, 
considering cybernetic networks of communication and control, and querying the multiple modes through which we imagine immersion as a descent into liquid, as an absorption of mind and body in some activity or interest, like listening to music, and in a meaning of relevance to anthropologists, immersion as the all-encompassing entry of a person into an unfamiliar cultural medium. So I'm interested in these different notions of immersion and how they ricochet off of one another. The watery, the cognitive, the auditory, the cultural. How is it that we imagine all of those kinds of immersions and what do the different genres of them have to say to one another? Understanding how immersion functions also requires tweaking media theory to include the medium of water. So we can define media as substances, channels, or instruments through which forms of action are propagated. The sea sensed by scientists can then be construed as a media ecology, a complex of material relations among researchers and their objects of study, relationships structured by techniques of perception, communication, and presence, intimate and remote. As we begin our hour-long descent to the bottom of the ocean in this sub maintained in its interior at one atmosphere of pressure, that is to say the interior of the sub is, is maintained at a constant pressure, namely the pressure that we are in more or less here at sea level. Um, so the Alvin submarine is, has a titanium casing to prevent us from being squashed into things the size of Snickers bars. As we begin our hour-long descent to the bottom of the ocean in the sub maintained in its interior at one atmosphere of pressure, the image comes to me of Alvin as a ball of culture, submerged in the domain of nature. As the vent biologist Cindy Van Dover suggests in a more sensational phrasing, quote, descending the water column in a submarine is an unnatural act, unquote. But natural and cultural dynamics develop dense interrelations as well, feeding back into one another in Alvin's submersion. The assemblage of the sub and its encapsulated scientists is clearly a cyborg, a complex combination of the organic and machinic kept in tune and on track through the self-correcting dynamics of visual, audio, and tactile feedback. Positioned in the sub, our bodies are threaded into a media ecology of communication and control, networked into a semiotic order that extends, modulates, and conditions our senses. Being an anthropologist on Alvin makes me anxious about my role in this circuit. Recalling an iconoclastic one-liner delivered by Chris Kelty, another ethnographer of the hyperactively technological, I ask myself, what would Margaret Mead do? <laughs> Geologist John Delaney unsuspectingly answers my question, scripting me into the informatic loop, wisecracking that my research will constitute, quote, a recursive study of ourselves studying, unquote. Mead, Margaret Mead, that is, you may be interested to learn, was not only fascinated by sex in Samoa, but was also a big fan of feedback systems. In a 1968 article recursively entitled Cybernetics of Cybernetics, Margaret Mead called for anthropologists to become familiar with the vocabulary of information theory, to take seriously the possibilities and effects of systems thinking and doing. So in this talk, I take up that charge, paying, paying homage to my, my great anthropological foremother, Margaret. Um, I'm paying attention to the role of sound in constituting the experience of scientific and cultural immersion. Using my dive in Alvin as a narrative vehicle, I reflect less on what I saw in the teensy patch of ocean floor I visited and more on what I heard. Key to my concern here is a curiosity about the ways the underwater world is fashioned as a soundscape. 
I am interested in the cognitive, affective, and cultural effects of translating sound signals from the medium of water into that of air, and with what an anthropology of such translated sensing, or more technically, transduced sensing, can tell us about what might be missing from the metaphor of immersion, whether we speak of plunging ourselves into water or into the medium of culture itself. My questions lead me toward a med meditation on what I call the submarine cyborg, the cyborg in a deep sea soundscape. What is a soundscape? Ecologically minded musician R. Murray Schaefer coined the term in 1977 to call attention to his worry that natural sonic environments were being increasingly polluted by industrial noise. Historian Emily Thompson, in a less anxious register, defines the soundscape as, quote, an auditory or oral landscape, simultaneously a physical environment and a way of perceiving that environment. It is both a world and a culture constructed to make sense of that world, unquote. A soundscape includes what anthropologist Stephen Feld calls an acoustomology, a sonic way of knowing and being in the world. Acoustomology, of course, being an unholy hybrid of acoustics and epistemology. Acoustomology. Though it may seem to go without saying, three-dimensional space has been central to the conception, the acoustomology of the soundscape. Sonic spatiality works differently underwater than in air, especially if you're a human. Raising the question of exactly how the undersea domain has been worked upon to become a sensible soundscape for submariners. This question opens into another. How does sonic seascaping create alignments as well as tensions between ideas about watery and auditory immersion? So let me return to my ethnographic setting inside the submarine, from which seat I will spin out stories of sounding, soundscaping, listening, hearing, not listening, immersion, and transduction. So we are well into our descent, some 400 meters down. Bruce switches off Alvin's exterior lights to save power, leaving the outside ink black. We continue to sound in the sense of diving into and investigating, fathoming the deep. Such, such sounding employs devices like sonar, sound navigation and ranging that, in a confusing pun, capture and transmit sound. So there's two different kinds of sound going on here. Sound as fathoming, which has its etymological moorings in the Old English sund, for sea, and sound as vibration, which has its roots in Old English sfin, for melody. With the interior lights dimmed, a cycle of blips and bleeps captures my attention. Bruce identifies these for me as a 9 kilohertz tracking pulse sent out from Alvin to Atlantis every three seconds, a 9.5 kilohertz response from the ship, and a steady metronome of pings from transponders dispatched to the seafloor by Atlantis in advance of Alvin dives. Transponders are spheres about the size of beach balls that, anchored and floating about 180 meters off the seafloor, transmit sonic signals that help the sub continually to locate itself in three dimensions using triangulation. Bruce says he thinks of transponder pings as background noise. But they are not exactly the meaningless patter that journalist Victoria Kaharl, who descended in Alvin in 1989, rendered in her dive narrative text as occasional interruptions of, quote, wah, 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 whoa, 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 wah, 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 unquote, and pop, wee, wee, whoa, unquote. <laughs> For Bruce, rather, the, the noises secure a sense that the sub is somewhere rather than nowhere supported in a web of sound rather than lost in a featureless void. Even though he jokes that the prattle of pings can be an acoustic will-o'-the-wisp, and a will-o'-the-wisp is something that deludes by means of fugitive appearances, um, these echoes are for him the, the warp and the weft of a reassuring soundscape. Without them, it would be too quiet, he offers. 
So far from being noise as irrelevant or superfluous information, much less noise as a direct line to its etymological anchor in the classical Latin nausea, transponder pings constitute noise as the hum of a world, as what musician Aidan Evans calls an implicated reserve of sense. In The Sounds of Science, Listening to Laboratory Practice, sociologist of science Cyrus Modi writes that, quote, labs are full of sounds and noises, wanted and unwanted, many of which are coordinated with the bodily work of moving through space, looking at specimens and manipulating instruments, unquote. And so it is here in the oceanographic field, too. Work in Alvin is coordinated by and through sound, even if we are not always fully tuned in to quite how. Indeed, our task this afternoon to map a tiny swath of the seafloor makes use of a system that translates sonic soundings, which we do not hear, into computer-generated topographic images. Alvin moves through and creates a multiplicity of soundscapes at various frequencies and levels of accessibility to submariners' ears. How have underwater soundscapes come into audibility for humans? Devices that permit listening across media, from water over into air, environments like the inside of the sub, for example, are essential. Alvin, maintained at one atmosphere of pressure in its interior, can only deliver to its passengers a sense of an exterior soundscape because of such devices. What might be less obvious is why the underwater realm is not a soundscape for people, unless and until such prosthetic technologies are made available to our naked ears. So consider a skin diver. The sensation of floating in a three-dimensional net of sound is not immediately available to people swimming submerged in water. This is because it is nearly impossible for humans to use underwater acoustic vibration to locate themselves in space. For one thing, sound waves travel four times faster in water than in air. For another, human eardrums are too similar in density to water to provide the resistance that can interrupt many underwater vibrations so that they might be translated into tympanic movement, that is, sound in the ears. Lots of vibrations pass right through our bodies. For humans, underwater sound is largely registered by bones in the skull, which will allow enough resistance or impedance for vibrational motion to be rendered into resonance. More, conduction of sound by the bone directly to the inner ear confounds any difference between signals received from left and right, making it impossible to compose what audiophiles call a stereo image. Unaided human ears perceive underwater sound as omniphonic, coming from all directions at once. And indeed, because of sound's seemingly instantaneous arrival in many cases, sometimes as emanating from within one's very own body. The underwater medium is not immediately a soundscape for humans, since it does not have the textured spatiality of a landscape. It is a zone of sonic imminence and intensity, what I call a sound state. We can imagine a couple of acoustomologies corresponding to this phenomenology. One might have the auditor feeling the immediate compressing power of an alien medium, perhaps experiencing a shock akin to that felt by 18th century European cure seekers who traveled to the seashore to be suddenly immersed in cold water. Another acoustomology might posit a kind of oneness or a sensory communion with the medium, what Don Ede calls a dissolution of self-presence, a kind of melting into the water. Neither of these acoustomologies, though, opens out into the dimensional topography of a soundscape. It takes, te it takes technical and cultural translation to carve a soundscape for humans out of the subaqueous milieu, to endow submarine space with sonic distance and depth to create immersive space. Equipment must be constructed that can capture submarine vibrations in the audio register, hydrophones, for example, devices that can, get, that can get hold of underwater vibrations, usually using a microphone fashioned of ceramic or another material sufficiently denser than water to allow propagating waves to be impeded. 
Once sound has been received by a hydrophone, signals must then be transported into an airy medium for apprehension by human ears. The translation of sound across media is called transduction. Bringing underwater sound into human-occupied air pockets like Alvin requires transduction. And indeed, the possibility of imagining oneself immersed in a submarine soundscape depends on transduction, as indeed does the, feeling, does the sense of feeling omniphonically at one with a skull-enveloping fluid. If, as Emily Thompson suggests in her book, The Soundscape of Modernity, the soundscape of modernity is patterned by sounds, quote, increasingly the result of technological mediation, unquote, underwater soundscapes do not exist at all for humans without such mediation and in the case of Alvin, without first becoming soundedscapes. And so, for auditors inside Alvin, transponder signals must be transduced to create the echoing sounds carried to listeners cocooned inside the sub. Bruce's joke about the will-o'-the-wisp character of these sounds speaks to the sometimes misleading nature of the aqueous vibrational field. Turbulence and other refracting motions of water can produce fluctuating amplitudes, frequency smearing effects, and blobs of reverberation that make directionality difficult to discern, discern, even once sounds are converted across media. Water waves, which form underwater where liquid layers of different temperatures meet, also change the contours of vibration, introducing such complexities as Doppler effects, even for submarine auditors who think they are staying still. Closer listening cannot really help when these factors pile up on one another. But none of us in Alvin, not even the pilot, really needs to listen to the sounds of sonar very closely. These days, onboard computers process transponder and other sonar signals and translate and deconvolve them for visual displays. On Alvin, sound has been transposed into visual data for more than a quarter century. In the early 1980s, when computers were first installed in Alvin, they were divided into three kinds, named collectors, listeners, and nodes which, in sequence, gathered, sorted, and displayed data and allowed a human interface. And this is from a technical report from 1984. Listeners were not strictly or only dedicated to sound processing. They were so named because of their general interpretive sorting functions. They were programmed to make data presentable, worthy of attention. But the word listening is important. As historians of sound have demonstrated, listening has been associated with active, often highly technical, efforts to interpret or discern auditory sensation while hearing has been imagined as passive, a letting of sounds just wash over the ear. Listening is work. If listening to sonar in Alvin has been delegated to machines, the result is that we passengers now hear in a much more diffuse, less disciplined way than we may have in earlier days. Our sonic habitus has been transformed. In remediation, understanding new media, J. David Bolter and Richard Grusin offer that, quote, our culture wants both to multiply its media and erase all traces of mediation. Ideally, it wants to erase its media in the very act of multiplying them, unquote. That impulse well describes the experience in Alvin, delivering an at once immediate and hypermediated sense of presence, a presence that is a desirable object for oceanographers who, as David Mendel has pointed out, have heavy identity investments in imagining themselves adventurers fully present in a difficult-to-access world. To be sure, Alvin pilots must remain attentive to the rhythms of the sub. Bruce, after all, is able to describe sonar sounds once his attention is directed to them. But he spends most of his technical listening on the sounds of the vehicle's engines and thrusters over which he has more control. 
It was incumbent upon earlier generations of submarine pilots to be attentive auditors of sonar, and it was through such listening that the crackling of crustaceans, the snapping of shrimp, and the singing of whales was first disclosed, providing a portrait of soundscapes in existence for underwater creatures which already had the means to hear them. Soundscapes likely altered by such sounds as Alvin's transponder pitter-patter, to say nothing of the racket created by large-scale sonar surveys. Scientists no longer think the deep to be a quiet, meditative space, what Jacques Cousteau called a silent world. But when it comes to the routine work of subs like Alvin, humans no longer need to listen closely to such sounds. This is not to say that sound inside subs is no longer as present as it was back in the era of World War II when sonar headphones were standard equipment. But sound is now heard differently. At the risk of repeating myself, if it is made audible at all, sound is heard rather than listened to. Sound from outside Alvin becomes a just-out-of-consciousness buoy for our perception of floating presence. Because we do not need to work at the boundary between self and sound, that is, because we do not have to be actively aware of transducing, the boundary becomes imperceptible, inaudible. We become immersed and absorbed. Modi suggests that, quote, the boundary between desirable sound and unwanted noise is, is very much a constructed, contingent, and historically variable one, unquote. So, too, with the boundary between sound listened to and heard, between meaningful sound and background hums. The building of this boundary into machinic and bodily techniques contours how people perceive their relation to spaces, places, and to their own bodies. But it's not all hushed ambient techno in the world of Alvin. There is a more familiar interior air-pocketed soundscape as well. And let me interrupt myself here to remind you that this air pocket of Alvin is held at one atmosphere of pressure, which is a different circumstance than obtains in saturation diving, which acclimatizes divers to pressures greater than one atmosphere for prolonged periods and requires extended decompression. Um, in some of saturation diving cases, in order to prevent oxygen poisoning, uh, helium is often added to the mix, which causes div divers' voices to rise. <laughs> I have here a sample from a Navy recording from the 1960s about what that might sound like. Let's listen to Commander Scott Carpenter and his crew at depth in Sea Lab 2 as they relax in song to the tune of Good Night, Irene. <laughs> Okay, so, uh, <laughs> so next time I have the opportunity to do um, submarine field work, I think maybe I'll try to hook myself with, up with a saturation diving outfit so that I can sound like Alvin and the Chipmunks. <laughs> uh, so Bruce, John, and I don't have such a fun gas mixture in Alvin. Um, <laughs> so our voices sound more or less normal, with, a, with for me, you know, sort of a little undertone of terror. Um, as we continue our descent, a quiet classic rock soundtrack accompanies us from Bruce's MP3 player, which is plugged into the submarine. <laughs> Sociologist Chandra Mukherjee, in her analysis of videotapes from Alvin Dives, suggests that music functions as a so social and psychological means for normalizing the process of working in a small sphere at the dark seafloor. It might come as no surprise that the North American users of Alvin often compare it to a car. 
Playing music in automobiles, as Michael Bull writes in Soundscapes of the Car, often serves to sever drivers from the outside world, creating a kind of private interior space. You've all been in cars, I hope. I, I don't, I, mean, I, I think, I don't hope. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> so, but in Alvin, playing, so in Alvin, playing music also creates this kind of interior privatized space. Um, but because it mingles with the transduced soundscape of the outside, the effect is to feel at once inside a bubble and porously immersed in a wider world. According to sound historian Jonathan Stern, the dominant phenomenology of Western science and religion tells us that, quote, hearing is concerned with interiors, vision is concerned with surfaces, hearing tends toward subjectivity, vision tends toward objectivity, hearing is a sense that immerses us in the world, vision is a sense that removes us from it, unquote. The sounds of Alvin, echoing from outside, trickling from inside, reinforce the notion that we are in an interior space that is itself both sonically and wetly immersed. The various pings and pongs create an echoing sense of being in a landscape that extends beyond the confines of the sphere. Perhaps one reason few people become claustrophobic in the tight space of Alvin. And the music bouncing off the walls of the sphere reinforces this sense of immersion. Music, of course, has often itself been imagined as immersive. David Toop in Ocean of Sound writes that, quote, the image of bathing in sound is a recurrent theme of the past 100 years. Debussy's Reflections in the Water, Ravel's Water Games, Ripple Around the Listener, Schoenberg's Summer Morning by a Lake, Wraps Us in Flickering Submarine Light, unquote. Alvin divers may not favor such modernist compositions, but they do go for soundscapey music. Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon is a perennial favorite. <laughs> you saw that coming. When we arrive at the seafloor, Bruce turns on the lights of the sub, illuminating the rocky landscape around us. Spider crabs crawl lugubriously over brown boulders. The 300 atmospheres weighing on the sub outside are impossible to imagine from inside our tight titanium bubble. We approach a complex of hydrothermal vent spires and chimneys called faulty towers, after the British sitcom. And John tells me, what, quote, what you're going to see is what you see on the poster in the Atlantis dining room. So in the mess hall of the ship, there's a large poster of um, the Endeavor, of parts of the Endeavor hydrothermal vent field. Um, and you can sort of see, although I suppose that light should have been off this whole time. Ah, this looks like it's going to electrocute me, though. I don't want to do that. Um, I, I'm not into that kind of transduction today. So the, the kind of um, sort of tethered circular blobby type thing you can see up, up there is um, is the Alvin submarine. So you have a sort of sense of the scale of hydrothermal vent spires. So John tells me, you know, what you're going to see is something you've already seen this other kind of representation of. Although, of course, when you're in the submarine, it doesn't look at all like that. It looks like you see little patches um, and not really whole things very much. Um, this template, this reference to the composite photograph displayed in the mess hall of the ship gives me a template against which to judge my vision. I fiddle with one of the digital cameras provided in the sub. Delaney instructs me to look out the window. Right now, if I were you, I'd be focusing exclusively on looking. Never mind the photography. I've got thousands of pictures. Just fill your eyes. Right. Um, in this cyborg setting, we can play with the prosthetics that modulate and channel our sensing. And we can also fiddle with the ratios between different senses. And there are many features of Alvin that I haven't talked about at all um, that are part of the media ecology. Each passenger has a little... Uh, Virgin Atlantic kind of television screen that is, uh, affords them access to various views 
from the outside of the submarine that are taken by cameras that are uh, attached to various um, areas. So that fiddling with ratios between different senses and the kind of uh, media overload that that sometimes leads to um, is something that I think it's useful to think of uh, in, in terms that musicologist Robert Fink has called a media sublime. And by the media sublime, Robert Fink means sort of an overpowering flow of mediated sense data. And his um, patient zero for media sublime is the Philip Glass movie Koyanis Katsi. Right, this kind of flow of all of this kind of data that you're emplaced in and you're struggling to kind of try to understand. Um, so what musicologist Robert Fink calls the media sublime provides this interesting kind of access um, and sometimes disruption of that other famous sublime, the oceanic sublime, celebrated by romantic poets and other people of that ilk. What I'd like to do now is show you a little bit of video from my dive. Um, so I have here a QuickTime movie. which I will make bigger somehow. And um, so this is footage that's shot. Is there a way to? Oh, excellent. Can we rewind and I can do the whole talk again like that? <laughs> um, so this is footage that's shot by a camera that's positioned on the exterior of the sub. Um, and it's kind of this automatically pointed camera that um, actually, none of us really has any control over um, in terms of you know, where it's pointing. There are other cameras that, uh, do, over which we do have control. But this is kind of the automatic record that's kept um, of the entirety of the dive. So you know, I have eight hours of, of this, which I will now proceed to show you. <laughs> no, um, and this, because, of the, because of the interesting automaticity of this, it's kind of like um, those weird computer programs in computer-controlled uh, com um, cameras in the latest Lars von Trier movies, in which Lars von Trier gives up command and control of his camera and lets a computer just randomly move around the scene. So you don't always see what you want to see. But I'm also showing this to you so that you can listen, so you can hear it. So this is as we're descending. The um, escort divers are swimming around the sub to make sure that we're not going to die. And if you listen closely, you, you can hear, hear the voices. Some, you can hear a bit of the engines. You can start to hear some of the kind of pinging. I think if you listen closely, at one point, you can hear Bachman-Turner overdrive. So, you know, Bruce's art. So this is, you can see in the distance is the Atlantis, the ship from which the submarine is deployed. And they're sort of a going back and forth and cross-checking to make sure everything is cool. And then I will just take you underwater. It submerges. Um, the, the time code that's there in the center is Greenwich Mean Time. So this is off of the coast. This is about 200 miles away from um, Seattle. So that time is whatever the difference between Seattle and, and the UK is. So everything is time coded. So people can then go back later and try to see what happened. So you go farther down. Things get really boring for a while. And so there's an hour leap here from 1505 to 1605 as we've dropped an incredible number of meters. 
So we travel all the way down to about 2,200 meters. So arriving at the bottom, once there's a seismometer, which is you know tsunami detection kind of thing. Uh, there's a spider crab crawling along the top. Maybe you can see that. It's really slow. How do we, where are we? Yeah. Um, so then we arrive near um, Faulty Towers, which you can't see at all because the camera doesn't really care. But you can, what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get you to, to, to listen to what's going on. So these are hydrothermal vent spires off sort of to the right. Marine snow, which is organic detritus that's falling down from the surface. No, that's, that's the engines. So then now this is simply only inside. This is, I made this recording with my tape recorder. So that's the flavor of that. That's, that's the sound of the engines, the thing that sounds like the cicadas. Yeah, I mean, the higher, most high-pitched thing. So what I want to draw your attention to here are the voices, the voices inside the submarine. There's another soundscape here, which is um, the fugitive speech of passengers. Um, but as you may have already guessed, not all speech is evanescent and fugitive because each passenger is provided with a cassette recorder to record impressions of the dive, or in my case, to, as an anthropologist, to record everyone else re making recordings in this recursive study of ourselves studying, which I could never fully escape. Um, so you know, with that in mind, and, and with a number of the other kinds of devices that I've talked about in mind, um, I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that Alvin is a recording studio, which is probably not very surprising. And indeed, a previous chief engineer for the Alvin group had substantial audio experience um, building state-of-the-art sound systems for Joan Baez, Jeff Beck, Sonny Rollins, Steely Dan, and Joni Mitchell. By the 1970s, recording studios themselves had become places that were standardized. They had become sites of signal routing, monitoring, and controlled feedback. In short, control and communication systems like Alvin. The sub then can profitably be thought of as a cyborg. Cyborg names an entity that exists through the ongoing maintenance of its equilibrium and boundaries. The boundaries of cyborgs are, are subject to shift and expand as they are networked to other feedback dynamics across scales and contexts. So the coordination of submarines with surface ships uh, describes a kind of bigger cybernetic system than the submarine alone. So it kind of depends on where you slice uh, the relevant signals, right? Um, the cyborgs don't necessarily have boundaries that are stable. It depends on the communicative action that is summoning forth the very boundary itself. Cyborgs, though, have been primarily imagined in a visual and even a textual register. Donna Haraway, in her important Cyborg Manifesto, a call to rethink and recode the boundaries of humans and information technologies, suggests that, quote, writing is preeminently the technology of cyborgs, unquote. 
For all the attention to signal and noise that has animated cybernetic thinkings about fusions of flesh and information, though, such qualities have often been rendered as readable qu quantities, as measurements legible as lists of numbers or patterns on graphs. Considering Alvin as a cyborg, however, draws our attention to sonic dimensions of cyborg embodiment. As a submarine cyborg, Alvin can be used as a model for sounding the interiors of cybernetic entities, for calling into audibility the transductions that unfold and, cre at and create the boundaries of such um, items. So in the sub's interior, our sense of immersion, of intimacy, of a feeling for the cyborg, is accentuated by our subliminal and subjective sense of the sounds that surround us, sounds we are no longer encouraged to comprehend, let alone experience, as transduced. What historian Hillel Schwartz names the indefensible ear, that organ imagined as always vulnerable, always on, the fragile ear that doesn't have ear lids, has become a channel that we think we cannot turn off and that opens into our innermost selves. But, as Stern argues in his history of sound reproduction, modern audio technologies themselves have been bound up in reconstructing acoustic space as a private interior phenomenon belonging to a single individual. The sense of Alvin as a private interior space, belonging to be sure to three closely squashed individuals, um, is accentuated and enabled by this acoustomology. By directing our ears to submarine cyborgs, I mean to make explicit how the idea of immersion depends on a fashioning of sensing as itself imperceptible. The goal, in fact, of early cyborg theoreticians Manfred Kleins and Nathan Klein, who coined the term cyborg, defining it as, quote, an organizational complex functioning unconsciously as an integrated homeostatic system, unquote. The very invisibility of our sensorium to us is precisely what we need to be trained to doubt. More, we need to examine how such functioning can be secreted within the very technologies with which we form cyborg circuits. As Stern suggests, quote, if media do indeed extend our senses, they do so as crystallized versions and elaborations of people's prior practices or techniques of using their senses, unquote. It is the crystallization and forgetting of such practices that permits the identification, for example, of absorption in music with immersion. Such forgetting permits John, Bruce, and me to feel immersed. 2,000 feet down in Alvin, Delaney and Strickrot begin mapping segments of the Endeavor hydrothermal vent field. Let's see. Uh, which eventually ends up in representations like this, which I'll explain in a moment. Our task is to run lines up and down and back and forth along a defined area of the vent field, um, you know, mapping things that haven't yet had this degree of resolution um, attached to them. Bruce refers to this practice as mowing the grass because it's so boring and routine, <laughs> right? If our vertical arrival at the seafloor was saturated with the imagery of immersing ourselves in an alien medium, this horizontal motion takes us across a wilderness to be tamed and domesticated. In most narrations of Alvin Dives, such movement is described as frontiering. New York Times science journalist William Broad, who also dove with John Delaney, extends the American character of such imagery, offering that the mid-ocean ridges are like seams on a baseball, and that the Juan de Fuca Ridge is akin to the gentle hills of the Appalachians. Um, here are these seams on the baseball. This is the world system of um, hydrothermal, uh, of ocean ridges, where many hydrothermal vents are sited in these kind of 
um, C4 spreading centers and subduction zones that are alarmingly labeled in red for <laughs> purposes of clarity. Um, before I embarked on my dive, one scientist on Atlantis prepared me. It makes you feel insignificant being down there. If they were all visible above water, these places would be national parks. And in fact, parts of this hydrothermal vent field are in kind of the next best thing. There are segments of this in the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Not from my dive, which was insignificant and only allows me to do things like write a paper like this, but um, from more hardcore kind of geology endeavors. So Bruce's summary of our work as mowing the grass domesticates these kind of national park similes, casting us as doing the mundane work of keeping the space known and cultivated, maintaining it as a kind of American subdivision. Then again, careful scrutiny of our coordinates reveals that we are in fact in Canada, or more precisely in Canadian waters. In other words, this is not simply an immersive space. Rather, this is a medium in which our work is rigidly structured, even surveilled. Our submarine cyborg must move within spaces already configured by governance, like exclusive economic zones, maritime extensions of landed national territories. So you can see this is a map of in dark blue, um, exclusive economic zones, which are extensions into water space of national territories. Um, and we were in Canada's during this and had gotten clearance from the Canadian Navy. So as part of cruise planning, Atlantis had to get clearance not only from the Navy, but from the Canadian State Department to deploy Alvin in these seas, which were um, also part of a marine protected area. So the science party had to work within a circumscribed zone, which turned out to be uh, a circle of five nautical mile radius. As Alvin and I look at Alvin's position, at Alvin, as Delaney and I look at Alvin's position displayed on one of the sub's computer screens, we pinpoint the position of the vehicle relative to mapped and unmapped portions of the seafloor. Several minutes into our mowing of the underwater lawn, Delaney delivers what to me is an astounding announcement as he watches the icon of Alvin move toward the already charted area. Eyes fixed on the computer screens, he intones, we are merging with our data. <laughs> this idea of becoming one with the data, of the map becoming the territory, of culture feeding into nature in a cybernetic one-to-one -one mapping speaks to the intimacy that Delaney feels with this terrain. Merge, of course, derives from the Latin mergere, to dip or plunge, the same root as immersion. A couple of days later, at the daily science meeting on Atlantis, Delaney enacts his sense of merging corporeally as he reviews the topography of the site we visited, um, and he had to hand, hey Rufus, he had to hand, uh, he had to hand a, um, a, three to, uh, a, a movable version of this that he could kind of virtually fly around. This was sort of the result of pretty intense labor on the part of a whole fleet of postdocs who got the data and tried to put it together in some kind of presentable format. Um, as uh, Delaney reviews the topography of the site we visited, he directs a postdoc, the person who painstakingly created the final graphic, to pan and tilt a three-dimensional computerized map projected on a video screen. He moves his body like a conductor, and he says, music please, perfectly embodying the orchestrating directing relation of professor to postdoc, so characteristic of the natural sciences. In this dance, his body fuses with the map. He merges with the data. The deep sea through a transductive cyborg chain of laboring students, scientists, technicians, submarine pilots, and information technologies is drawn close, is made immersive. In my forthcoming book, 
on deep sea marine microbiology, what I call the alien ocean, and here's that book which is going to come out soon, this is the advertisement portion of the talk. Um, <laughs> In, in this kind of cyborg dance, the alien ocean becomes the intimate ocean. He draws it close. So, Cyrus Modi asks of laboratory practice, quote, do sounds merely surround knowledge making in labs, or are they also bound up in the knowledge that gets made, unquote? A consideration of sound in ocean science can extend such curiosity to an examination of how knowledge is crafted not only in the lab, but also in that space known as the field. Indeed, sounding with sound has fundamentally enabled the very making of the undersea realm as a field, as many, many historians of oceanography have made plain. What I have hoped to illustrate here is how submarine sound has these days sunken into the scientific background, heard but not listened to. How is this process bound up in the knowledge that gets made? When cybernetic practices, like echolocation, become fully automated, they slide into an epistemic ground that spirits them into unacknowledged common sense, into a cultural medium in which people are unreflectively immersed. It is, of course, a cliche to say that anthropologists specialize in immersing themselves in culture, whether these are social worlds distinct from their everyday lives or more finely examined versions of something they already thought was familiar. But what might be we mean by this? What are the limits of the image of immersion? How can I use the story I've told here to meditate on what this metaphor includes and excludes? Immersion is a poor tool for thinking about the structure of space, about the materiality of the media in which we as participant observers or participant auditors are located. If, as Friedrich Hitler writes in gramophone film typewriter, media determine our situation, Immersion is not necessarily what Haraway would call situated knowledge. Oceanographers don't just merge with their data. Submarines don't just dive anywhere they like in unstructured space. And anthropologists don't just soak up culture. One way immersion functions as a rhetorical tool promising experiential truth is by eliding the question of the organization of space, of medium, of milieu, whether of an ecosystem or a social order positing a fluid osmosis of environment by an emplaced participant. Immersion has come to suggest being submerged in a space as well as becoming one with it, dissolving into it. Immersion then does not immediately entail questions of how boundaries are produced and crossed and erased. Against immersion then, I offer the metaphor of transduction, which can tune us into textures of disjuncture, into the corporeal material character of transferring signals. If the information sciences instructed us that information is an abstract property that can be transferred across boundaries and substrates, the transcoding dream of the cyborg, the concept of transduction reminds us of the physical material dimension of such transfers and directs us to questions of resistance and distortion, questions of social circuit circuitry. So rather than thinking immersively, what about thinking transductively? In his Transductions, Bodies and Machines at Speed, Adrian McKenzie, building on the work of Gilbert Simondon, writes that, quote, to think transductively is to mediate between different orders, to place heterogeneous realities in contact, and to become something different, unquote. It is to pay attention to the capacitances, impedances, and resistances in the circuits of cyborgs, so that, to the work that needs to be done so signals can link machines and people together. To think transductively is to burrow into the infrastructure that supports the transmission of information across media, structure that is whisked out of apprehension by the metaphor of immersion. 
to think transductively is not only to attend to the changing qualities of signals as they propagate across media, but also to inquire into the very idea of the signal itself, which historians of technology and science will remind us lead us back to the fluid metaphors that suffuse discussions of electricity with flows and currents and so on. To think transductively is to ask after what we mean by words such as medium and media and milieu, that French coinage that places us variously in pre-existing circumstances or in worlds summoned forth by our very emplacements, though always in the middle. Milieu is, of course, being in a middle place. Transduction, right? Um, Deleuze and Guattari is, quote, the manner in which, in which one milieu serves as the basis for another, or conversely is established atop another milieu, dissipates in it or is constituted in it, unquote. Transductive thinking presses toward a broader consideration of the metaphors that organize our conceptions of sensing. But to end, in the realm of the auditory, in asking that we attend to sounding, listening, and hearing at work, I have suggested that we might begin to listen to or for that which we usually only hear, more, I have asked for a particular kind of listening, for directing our ears to sounds just out of usual consciousness, listening to and for that which we usually just listen through. What can emerge from such listening are not the simple recursive studies of ourselves studying that my co-passenger John Delaney joked about and that Margaret Mead would surely have enjoyed, um, but rather transductive studies tuned to the conditions that produce our sense of immediacy, mediation, hypermediation, and of distance, presence, and intimacy in the first place. And that's it. <laughs> that's where it ends. Thanks very much. That was terrific. Um, so we do podcasts of this, and I have to give you a microphone. I should probably mention, Stephanie, you teach a course on anthropology of sound. The that's true. The description is... I do teach a course on anthropology of sound. Oh, certainly. I mean, a lot of it's about the history of recording technologies, about histories of how people hear, and it draws on ethnomusicology, um, a history of technology, history of science, so sort of thinks about hearing and listening and not listening from all those different vantage points. I do a whole section on silence, different styles of being quiet, from Quaker meeting to silent reading to uh, deaf culture. So I'm also interested, as you might guess, in when things stop functioning and when the metaphors no longer work, including the metaphors that I use myself. Can I ask a watery question? Is there a glass of water that I could, um, that I could access? No. Thank you so much. Uh-huh. Invisible 
the, 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 the work of making those right. sounds into the kind of information that's useful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, and, and what part of what I'm interested in is that ratio between the immersive and the and the um, the articulatedly transductive, right? That and and how that shifts over time. That the experience of sound for submariners in the 1940s is different from what it is today, with you know particular kinds of effects on what people can take for granted, on and when they can feel immersed, and when they can feel at one with the machines. And then you're right when when things break in that kind of Heideggerian way that they have of doing, people are sort of thrown into this craft knowledge of having to kind of go back and tunnel into the craft knowledge that may still be there that allows them to, to fix it, right? I mean, as I said, all these kinds of sounds, when I ask the pilot what they are, he knows what they are, right? He has a sense that they're out of his consciousness, but if I call him back into that consciousness, he has it available to him. In a way, though, that you know, other people in that circumstance may not. So it's also about you know, these different um, Different kinds of situated knowledges of different kinds of persons in the in in the cyborg circuit, right? So um, this kind of distributed cognition that characterizes so much um, maritime work and navigation has it uh, organizes social relations around people's different kinds of embodied ex ex experience and expertise um, with various levels of tacit and, and non-tacit knowledge. And the boundary between what's tacit and not tacit shifts from person to person, from moment to moment. And I'm interested in that boundary. And I, I'm, I'm hoping that something like transduction is a tool for kind of poking at the moments when people are forgetting. Mike? It's just for recording. Let's see, where should I start? Fathoming. A fathom is, is this, right? It's the length of an embrace. So it kind of starts out about hugging. Um, and it's not immediately about sound. Um, maybe, maybe let me go with a comparison of ethnography, that is you know, to what, what, what anthropologists do, and oceanography. How about that? I'll start there. Um, both oceanography and anthropology are field sciences, right? They've fashioned themselves as delivering knowledge about the world based on fieldwork, whether it's fieldwork at sea or in other cultures, as it used to be phrased in the early 20th century. Um, and in both cases, I think, in both the oceanographic and the anthropological case, the question of what counts as the field, how you know you're doing fieldwork, is changing, right? So. You know, just for those of you who are not 
anthropologists, you know, the, the quick history of 20th century, 20th century anthropology is, um, is this kind of undoing of the notion that anthropologists are supposed to go to uh, faraway places that are isolated, um, you know, preferably on an island so they can be bounded and described as a culture. You know, that's the kind of thing that anthropologists spent pretty much the whole 20th century demolishing as that which anthropologists should do, right? That culture is not something that is necessarily found in a particular place as though people are plants. And even plants aren't plants, but more about that <laughs> in, another, in another talk. Um, so, you know, attention to diasporas, transnational flows of people and capital, labor migration, all those kinds of things transformed the way anthropologists thought about what it meant to do field work. Um, questions of identity um, were important. What does it mean for anthropologists to um, be part of the communities that they seek to describe? So there's a total uh, decolonization, post-coloniality. All of these things remap what counts as the field that anthropologists want to study. Similarly, in oceanography, the question of what counts as the oceanographic field and how to represent it um, is also under revision. So that um, techniques of remote sensing um, are, be and let me back up a little bit. The Alvin dive seems like kind of totally perfect anthropological field work, right? Because I get to sit with one of the people and do one of their rituals, and go to the bottom of the sea, right? But it's actually a rather quaint thing for that community to do. Very few people actually are able to get onto Alvin or even consider it to be the best scientific instrument for making assessments about what the oceanographic field is in the first place. So satellite imaging or deep sea, un, deep sea um, cabled observatories which allow people to look at different nodes on the seafloor over the internet, those are the kinds of things that are remapping and reshaping how people construe the oceanographic field. Um, so I don't know if that speaks a little bit to your question, but yes. Oceanography, anthropology, they're both field sciences. The question of what the field is, is under revision. Um, and uh, I mean, just to make the analogy to remote sensing, more and more anthropologists do things like do fieldwork online, uh, do fieldwork in online communities, or, or do fieldwork about mediascapes, about transnational television communities, communities that are called forth by participations in global fan culture, right? Which is another kind of redistribution of the spatiality of the field, yes. despite my great love of Alvin, uh, is, is actually like a military submarine. And mm -hmm. I guess I was sort of wondering whether you would ever, I mean, I'm sure that you have right. considered this, but like, you know, whether there's ever been any work done on those types of submarines, or if you have done any or plan to do any, or I don't know. Um, I have not accessed military submarines, and I'm, I'm not optimistic that I, <laughs> that I will in the future. Right. Um, but... I mean, David, you may know this better than I, whether there have been ethnographies of, um, of Navy submarine stuff. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, that, I mean, they may have done it internally. Yeah. The, the, a Navy submarine operates in sort of fundamentally different space than this yeah. submersible does, because Navy submarines are basically ships that go, yeah. that go places, whereas Alvin yep. goes mostly up and down, and very little of <laughs> And so it's a very, very different way of experiencing the ocean. And as of as of the end of the Cold War, the Navy lost all interest in anything deeper than a thousand feet. And so, mm -hmm. in a way, the, the things that Stefan is describing are 
really unique to science these days. In the Cold mm -hmm. War, they were much more military interest. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, so, you know, being on a, a Navy submarine, fascinating world for lots of different reasons, but in some ways more akin to being on a ship or an airplane or spaceship sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, or maybe less a spaceship, that's more like I'm and there have been ethnographies of surface ships. So one famous one that you probably know about is Ed Hutchins' book, Cognition in the Wild, which is an ethnography of, 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 uh, of navigation on a Navy ship and delivers all kinds of interesting uh, stories about how people distribute cognitive tasks across a crew. Uh, Charles Goodwin is an anthropologist who wrote um, a piece about using conductivity measurements in uh, the South Pacific and did anthropological fieldwork about how people engage uh, with the kind of visual and graphing tools that are available to them, to them on board oceanographic ships. So there are, you know, and there's, there's a number of things about shipboard sociality. So, I mean, there's lots of sociology studies about the relations between, mari <laughs> yeah, about relations between scientists and merchant marine, right? There's all these, there's, so there's actually quite a bit of, of sociology about that. Stefan, a question about the, um, I don't really know what to call it, perhaps the cultures of the sonic, sonic environment. Um, I guess part of me, my, my instinct is to think this is sort of universal. Everyone's using the equipment that's been made in Japan or Germany or the States. But I know that in loudspeaker development, there are pretty specific both taste patterns that reflect what kind of speaker you look for, and certainly national patterns. British loudspeakers mm -hmm. are different from German and different from American in terms of how they tweak sound. Are these, are these sonic scapes that you're describing, are these system of pings and sonar, are those universal, or are there, are there sort of cultures or tribal areas that use different <laughs> configurations of sound? Because they're all tuned, uh -huh. tuned in. So right. Well, there must be, but I have to say that I don't know. Um, I, I don't know whether there's the Bose of underwater sound. I mean, there. <laughs> Well, th there are. I mean, there are sort of different companies that do these things, and people do have startup companies. I, can, I actually did meet a person doing a startup underwater audio company in Monterey, attached to the Monterey Bay Aquarium. So, so yes, but I have not done research to know the specifics of, of that diversity of audio underwater audiophile tweak culture. The place I've heard a little bit are those um, online sound effects, like Japanese sound effects. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. American sound effects, and at least their sonar is different. But mm -hmm. Uh -huh. or kind of place as it enters the water. And I wonder what he, I, I feel like saying he for Alvin, is like as a place out of the water, kind of when it's turned off and these cybernetic systems uh -huh. are not, and cybernetic uh, systems are not in place. And if that, if that moment or that, that kind of time for Alvin provides any interesting life that continues your metaphor, complicates it, or... Mm -hmm. Well, it's parked like a car. I think that's sort of the metaphor. Although one thing that does happen is that people do um, safety briefings in it. So you know, on, on a typical cruise, people will be invited to, well, be required to get in Alvin on deck before they get in it for real, right? So the day before you dive, or sometimes much earlier, it depends on, on how the chief scientist wants to do it, people get inside 
the submarine with the pilot. The pilot gives, gives you a kind of safety briefing. And it basically makes sure that you're not going to freak out and disrupt the journey for all sorts of reasons. I mean, are you too terrified? Are, are, do you look like a dangerous character to have down at the bottom of the sea? <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, so, so the life of the sub, you know, when it's not underwater, is, is partially that, partially kind of a, a very quick simulation for people who don't have much experience in it. But I can comment a little bit on the he part of it, on the gender of Alvin, because that um, is a kind of a live question um, in after-dinner talk among the crew about whether Alvin is a he or a she. <laughs> and this sort of reaches back to questions of who gets to go into the submarine. Um, and you may not be surprised to learn that it was many, many years before women oceanographers were um, able to use Alvin. So Alvin starts in 1964. The first woman is in Alvin in 1971. And I, I can read here a little excerpt from the diary of a geologist, Kathleen Crane, who wrote in her 1977 journal, um, so this is just six, six years after the first woman is allowed to dive in Al not allowed, d dives in Alvin, quote, I feel that to fit into this submersible operation, I have to become completely sexless so that nobody will notice that I am different from the others, unquote. So there's a kind of drag performance, right, that she feels as though she has to be a female man in order to be seen as um, somebody who can get into the submarine. Now, this has to do with lots of things, sort of the masculinity of Navy culture, all these sorts of things. Um, but this is a story that I heard again and again from more senior women scientists about their days as graduate students um, having difficulty getting into the submarine. Um, worries about what happens if you have to pee and whether the pee bottles are appropriately formatted for different genres of plumbing. Um, you know, and, and people talk about these things with some jocularity, but also seriousness. Um, and then there's, you know, so then let me back up to the question of, is Alvin a boy or a girl? One of the things that happens on these long cruises is that um, people gather for, um, for drinking and poetry night one day out of the cruise. Usually, I mean, on an NSF-funded ship, you cannot drink. But there's one day when you can have one beer. And that's also the day when, at least on the trip that I was on, there's also poetry night. So, so there was this fight about whether Alvin was a boy or a girl. And uh, one, of the, one of the guys on the crew, ordinary seaman, wrote a poem which goes like this. Alvin is my favorite sub. I'd like to take him to a pub. We'd sit and drink our favorite beer, and I would say, what's it like down there? He'd smile and smoke a fat cigar and say, I'm just a big white car that drives around the ocean floor, finds a rock, and drives some more. <laughs> so this is a, and then the first mate, actually, of the trip that I was on was a woman who was very keen to say that, no, 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 maritime vessels are always women, so this is a she like any other. And more than that, it's, um, it's a kind of womb that you get in, and you submerge <laughs> in the motherly sea. And when you emerge, especially if it's your first time, you are birthed as a member of the research community, right? So this is this kind of very typical anthropological rite of passage thing, which is, in fact, marked by being doused with cold water when you emerge from the submarine. So when I got out of the submarine, all the graduate students were waiting for me with big buckets of water, as cold as they could find it. So, so the, yeah, the question of gender, it, I mean, it's, 
it's funny, but it's also a signal of anxieties and a signal of transformations in the sociology of, of who's at sea, right? People are kind of transforming and transducing their, uh, their worries about gender and gender equity in maritime science onto these kind of objects to think with. Lisa. Well, because if they stop, presumably you could. Okay. But um, I mean, so some of it is a conventional choice, um, and you know, at least for that pilot and a number of other pilots, it's a reassuring kind of sound that they want. You're right. I mean, it could be transformed and muted, and then you could have an alarm go off. But that's not the way that um, it's turned out. As to the question of where it got its name, it's named after Alan Vine who was um, working a scientist at Woods Hole in the early 1960s. There are rumors that it was named after Alvin and the Chipmunks, which many of the scientists themselves tried to reinforce by putting big pictures of Alvin and the Chipmunks on their office doors in Woods Hole. Um, but it's named after Alan Vine. What? I just told you. I wasn't terrified, really. Um, I was excited. You know, I didn't show any pictures of myself because I look like an idiot. <laughs> so I'm all like smiling. But because um, it's, it's, well, it's interesting, right? Um, but, well, I thought, how, how do I do this as an anthropological moment, right? So I had a, I had a notepad. I mean, more, it wasn't just the Margaret Mead thing, but I was trying to figure out how to record this myself. I mean, anthropologists also have to record their field experiences. So how do I do this? You know, I had all kinds of prosthetic um, things available to me, like the, the, the various um, bearings, the coordinates in Alvin space, and also longitudes and latitudes. Uh, you know, Greenwich Mean Time, and I, you know, I kept notes um, where I'd write the time, and then I'd write something about what was happening. And then what really struck me was how confused my notes turned out to be. When I got this DVD that you know, shows you when everything is happening, and when you saw what, and then you can cross-check against all this other stuff in this putatively objective, empirical way, I was surprised by how often I misremembered things when I tried to write, when I tried to um, reconstruct from the scribbles that I had my own experience. I said, you know, at 1624, we saw this part of Faulty Towers. And I was completely wrong, right? And I went back, oh, that wasn't that at all. That was this other thing called giraffe. Why did I think that? So I mean, there's this interesting experience of disorientation, I think, which was confusing and difficult, um, and which I was really surprised by. I mean, it wasn't like I was on mushrooms or something, but it felt like it. <laughs> Yeah. Right, mm -hmm. But it strikes me is just the way in which um, sound is different in different historical periods of sight. Yep. It's a very sort of renaissance notion of uh -huh. sight, one that granted has been maintained in the sciences but did not 
yeah. let's say, mm -hmm. So, and back to your own experience, it strikes me that this, the deprivation of sight to a certain mm -hmm. extent amplifies the experience of right. lifting or whatever. And so I guess what I'm asking, but at the same time you're also saying that, well, we don't use this kind of diving and immersion and listening so much anymore. In fact, there are all these ways of, of observing. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm asking is, what's the relationship between the senses in terms of uh -huh. mapping this kind of um, scientific experiment and observation? Uh -huh. you know, where are the borders? Right. I think that probably, I mean, there's, there's a huge debate, and this is something that David Mendel, who's sitting over there a while ago, has written about. There's a huge kind of worry about whether submarine experience is useful anymore or whether people should use remote sensing and remote vision instead to deliver accounts of the ocean world. And so for many people, the experience of being in the sub is just something that they do for the experience. And many people would argue that it's actually scientifically not very useful to send down subs with people in them because they can't see very much, they can't hear very well, and what they, it, the data that they get is interesting, but do we really need the people there to get that data? Maybe we don't. Um, so you know, part of what that then produces is this sheer sensory um, delight of being in the submarine for a lot of people. You know? So I mean, it becomes much more a marker of people's identity rather than something that then feeds into scientific papers that they write. Um, an interesting contrast, though, is available to, with um, remotely operated robots, remotely operated vehicles, which are these uh, often tethered robots with cameras on them that deliver uh, visions of the deep sea up to surface ships where people look at um, those pictures and use them to navigate around the sea floor. Um, and that, it, um, in, in that case, there is a very interesting kind of set of sensory ratios being modulated. Um, and I can show you a picture of some of that. Let me see. So another thing that I did as part of the extended field work for this book was join um, a ship on which one of these uh, deep sea robots, pictured here, being lowered off the edge of the ship, was sent down to the bottom of the sea. And what happens is that inside the um, forecastle of the ship are all of these video screens which people use to navigate that robot around in the deep. And this experience is incredibly visual, and the sonic component is completely decoupled from any notion of presence in the deep. All the presence, all the telepresence, is uh, channeled through, the, through a visual um, kind of idiom. And in that case, there is sort of this interesting thing particularly to do with vision about whether vision is direct or whether vision is distant. Right? And so there's a vacillating experience that I think people have of being totally immersed in the, the, the point of view of the robot and you know, identifying their own hands with the robot hands. So the, hand, the robot hand, for example, can grab onto something like a tube worm at the bottom of the sea. And you know, that's done remotely by having an, a pilot actually mime that activity using an instrument on the ship. And they will talk about their own eyes and what they see and what they feel. And then in the next moment, they'll flip back and talk about what we all in the room feel, and it'll become distant again. And there's this kind of vacillation between immediacy and hypermediatedness, which I think goes back to the, the Bolter and Grusin stuff about the production of simultaneous immediacy and hypermediation, right? Which, um, 
you know, in some sense, the hypermediation is supposed to produce the experience of immersion. And this is also, you know, back to this, kind of a Kantian media sublime. This is like incredibly, it's like the mathematical sublime that Kant describes, where it's this incredible Koyanis Katsi situation of all of these screens and trying to manage what's going on on them to, to deliver some kind of um, sense of, of being there and having done the field work. Um, but yes, I mean, to go back to your earlier point, absolutely, these ideas about sensing transform over time. And yes, my claim is not some kind of trans-historical story about the relation between hearing is always immersive and sight is always distancing. You know, that would be a mistake to say that that's some kind of universal, right? That's, um, that's a culturally particular sedimentation and crystallization of how some people have sensed. And with any of these kinds of binaries, you can just flip it upside down and say it works the other way too. And you can find circumstances in which that's the case. You can do that with my, meta my description of listening versus hearing. So that listening is supposed to be attentive. Well, what do you do with somebody who's listening to Morse code, which they're doing sort of automatically? So it's both attentive and something that's a kind of passive waiting, you know? Um, I have a question, actually, to follow mm -hmm. up about sensing and senses. There was one point during the recording when someone, someone mentioned um, that you need to know what direction you're facing. Mm -hmm. why, why was that? Why is that important? Um, in the submarine? Yeah. So you don't hit things. Um, <laughs> So this is a really interesting confusion that we're having right now. Um, the, the question of um, who is the you? Yeah. Who, are you who are you talking about when? Like you, someone said to you yes. in the submarine, um, it's important to always know which way you're facing. Or right. I ask you a question, yeah. like, do you know which way you're facing? Right? Mm -hmm. So it was about a component of the submarine, namely one of the people, rather than the submarine as a whole? I thought he was referring to, yes, that's what I thought he was referring to, but he's actually referring to the submarine? Well, again, I mean, it's something where the reference of these various pronouns start to vacillate. Well, especially in English with a word like you, which is both plural and singular. There's lots of room for all kinds of, you know, sleights of hand about who's present where. Um, that's a rather... So it seems like that is just a moment of confusion. <laughs> I think what there was a bit of recording. I think the, the, the voice says something like, Stefan, remember what we said about always knowing your direction. This is more Oh, yeah, right. Right, this one. Um, yeah, I mean, this, this dude is a scientist. He's trying to give me the appropriate experience of being there. And the appropriate experience of being there is not just blissing out and going, whoa, it was great, but also like going, but saying, this is due east, and that is that formation. And I can go look that up on the map later, and I can you know, arrive at some kind of secure knowledge about that. Right? So I mean, it was trying to give me a sense of what it was like for him. It's very, very important for these people to know where they are in some kind of grid space so that they can understand later what the experience was about. Laurel. Right. And the, all of the different sort of layers of surveillance. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it was so great to hear what it sounded like inside the sub. But what I don't understand, or it seems that they're also studying themselves, studying. So uh -huh. it, it seems like there's all these different layers of people looking and surveilling and seeing what's happening. 
Right. But I couldn't tell in the recording if you can also hear what's going on on the mothership. You can from time to time, yeah, if they open a channel. Yeah, they can. I mean, well, it depends. It depends on what depth you're at. It depends on what depth you're at and whether they want to listen. Okay. Are you aware when they're listening to you or not? Not necessarily. But, you know, just to pick up on the, the nested character of it, part of what I'm trying to do with the transduction thing is kind of get away from the recursive nesting, right? So one of the things that this is, um, for an anthropological audience, anthropologists have lately, well, in the past 20 years, decided that they want to be reflexive, which means to take account of their own position in the field, right? So you describe something, but then you also describe yourself describing it. You describe yourself as, I'm a certain kind of person with a particular set of expertises, maybe a particular gender identity or a particular racial marking, and that affects the way that I can produce knowledge. But my worry about that is that it just reinvigorates the, um, the never fulfillable promise of total objectivity. It's like, oh, now I've included myself. I've just added this reflexive dimension, and now I'm in the picture too, and now I'm done, right? So what transduction is meant to do is to disturb that by thinking about, instead of thinking through that kind of ocular metric or that ocular perspectivalism, thinking in an auditory register, thinking with your ears, to think about how it is that the sense of presence gets produced in the first place, right? And so it's this process of constantly describing that which was a moment ago out of your attention and calling attention to it. And so it's, a, it's an account that never reaches that kind of closure, right? There's always the possibility of some kind of echo. And that's, that's, the, that's, that's why I bradley try not to do the recursive study of ourselves studying, right? That, I mean, that was one of the, the troubles for me in, in writing this paper. I had this dive story, and then I read lots and lots of other dive narratives, because lots of reporters have been on the submarine, and I was like, fuck, how do I write something different? <coughs> how do I write something that's not just about, I went to the sea and I looked out the window and there was a spider crab, and it, I thought, well, what if I switch the sensory ratios, right, and think about the sonic character of it, not just as something happening in the background, but as something that is constitutive of the very notion of presence at all, right, and what if I think about it using a kind of media ecology sort of mode. Yeah, I love your talk, Stefan. That was great. Um, I wanted to, to ask a question about something you said a couple of responses ago about note-taking and about the incoherence of your notes and how they had to be sort of fixed later on to represent your experience. This is something that I'm very interested in, um, the process by which travel writing is produced. Mm -hmm. um, and to some extent, the, the extent that it has to, the way that it has to be processed in order to, you know, produce a sense of immediate access to an experience, even one's own experience. Um, and I should say parenthetically that I'm really charmed that my colleagues in science and social science still use an arcane technology like note taking um, to do their work. But I used a pencil too. <laughs> Sort of, you know, under underwater environment, or does 
is it just that, you know, in this case you had a DVD that you could check them against? Can you talk about that? I didn't know that I would have a DVD that I could check them against later. So I was astounded when I learned that, that such a thing was available. Um, why were they confused? Um, that's a good question. I mean, would they be confused in any other social circumstance? Probably not. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought, they wouldn't, I thought they would not be confused because there's only two other people, so they're pretty easy to keep an eye on and describe. Um, the circumstances, this kind of closed world, it's sort of finite. There's a, there's a travel narrative that's sort of already spread out before us, right, that we know that it's a journey. We know that it's going to be structured as a narrative, right? I mean, the whole thing is... So, so I was surprised that... I was surprised by what confused me. I think it was... Um, it was probably the sheer empiricism of naming every single thing that, was, that undid some of the narrative, right? That I thought there was this narrative frame, and then the brute facticity of every moment, like there's a spider crab, there's a hydrothermal vent, you know, starts get, get written down, but then there's no, there's no narrative thread to, the, uh, to those things, right? So I think that might have been part of it. I was wondering you know, as opposed to, say, a social event, if I was doing an ethnography of... Um, of somebody arguing a Supreme Court case, there'd be a narrative, and then things that they said would be relevant to how the argument then proceeded, right? Or if there was social drama of some kind, social action would be formatted in such a way as to be meaningful with respect to that. I mean, and so there are a lot of things that really didn't have immediate meaning. Maybe that's so, it. So that I'd have to do that to know. <laughs> I don't know. Are road trips confusing? They can be. I was wondering about spatial disorientation. Yeah. Well, no, that's no, that's that's a very good. That no, no, the, the, it's no. You're right. Spatial disorientation is certainly a part of it. Which way are we facing? What does that mean? We're about to do? Are we close to this task or that task? CMS, wow. CMS. Wow. From our vineyards and... Uh, <laughs> On ca your campus vineyards? I wish. I think they're from the uh, state of Washington, just pretty close to where you were. Oh, excellent. Perfect. So with that, thank okay. you very much. Thanks very much.